Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and I might sound a little different than I normally do. I sound a little cleaner, maybe clearer, and that's because I'm coming to you from my home. It is 2.40 in the afternoon, and unfortunately, our podcast app failed, and so we don't have a recording of our class today, and so I thought, well, I'll come home. I'll use my podcast mic that I've got at home. It's not practical to use in a class setting, but it, you know I've got it here at home, and I'll just re-record my class. Now, this is unfortunate on a couple different levels because I really think that the experience in the class, teaching it in front of an audience, is always better. Um, but I feel like this is an important topic. We're doing week three of our Holy Roar series, and it's on the songs of praise. And so we're talking about, among other things, instrumental worship. And I really wanted to share this with uh, the few people that I know for sure will be listening to it. And so I figured, you know what, why don't I just go home and, and record it? So uh, here we are. Um, but I'm going to try and treat it like I did this morning and teach it effectively as I did this morning. Um, so, of course, uh, coronavirus is in the air, and it's also spring break, and so we had a few people out. So maybe you're out there, you're listening in the safety of your home, uh, where, uh, I don't know, you might be spending some extra time there as we as we prep for coronavirus, as we've just found out that it's uh, in Shelby County. Um Hopefully, though, you've been washing your hands uh, anyway. That's uh, your normal activity. Um, Before we start, I I do want to clear up any concerns that you might have over what we will discuss today. And and yes, we're going to talk about instrumental worship, but I'm not here to make anyone feel defensive or divided or to try and make a case necessarily that we should worship with instruments uh, at Highland on a Sunday morning. I picked this series, Holy Roar, uh, because I think it's good to think about how we should worship God when we sing. I think it's also good to ask if it's possible that perhaps we've missed something about worship that God has communicated to us through his word and through the way he has created each of us uniquely. And so during Holy Roar, if you're not familiar with the series, we have looked at the seven Hebrew words that are found in the book of Psalms that are translated into the English word praise. You might remember recently we did a word study, and so the same kind of concept was was active there. And Clint Till taught on probably the most famous of, of, of Greek words, love, and how there are four different Greek words for that that are in the New Testament. And so we understand that there's different colors of the word love that, that show up if you were to be able to read Greek. And the same is true of Hebrew, and so we have one word basically for praise or for worship. Well, they have at least seven that show up uh, in the Old Testament in Psalms. And so Peter Snell, he taught on our first week on the words halal and shabak, and halal means to boast, to rave, to celebrate, to be clamorously foolish, and shabak, which means to address in a loud tone, to shout, to commend, glory, and to triumph. And then Brishan taught last week on yadah and barak, on the posture of praise, and yada means to revere or worship with extended hands, to hold out the hands, and then barak means to kneel, to praise, to salute, and to thank. Now, if we're being honest, at least for those of us in this body at Highland, I, I doubt that most of us are comfortable with really any of these four words, myself included, and certainly not in the context of a Sunday morning worship, and maybe at sporting events or, or maybe at a wedding um, we're comfortable with this, or this is more common. Uh, and in fact, I was recently at a wedding, and this is one thing where the podcast won't work. Um, but I shot a video because I knew I was going to do this series in a couple months, and uh, the dance floor is is covered with people. 
And to be clear, this is a, this is a dry wedding. There's no alcohol at this wedding, so that was not contributing uh, contributing to it. But um, it was mostly younger uh, people in their early 20s, and they were dancing and singing loudly. And there's even a, a point where they lift this small boy, maybe a three-year-old, two-year-old, uh, above their shoulders, uh, sort of in celebration. And to me, it's like the perfect example of the sort of worship that Peter and Brecian were talking about. Now, to some people, they would see that and they'd say, well, that's, that's unruly, uh, or that's certainly, there's no way that's pleasing to God. But I think that we're faced with these words in Psalms with a question, and that question is, well, first, do we worship God like this? And the answer immediately is no, I think most of us. And then the second question is, should we? Um, and if we remember, you know, in the story of David and his wife Micah, when he was dancing in the streets, she uh, reprimanded him. And David responded back with a, a pretty serious reprimand of, himself, of, of his own towards Micah. And so I, I think this question of what is pleasing to God, oftentimes we answer with what we're most accustomed to, and that is our bias. And that doesn't necessarily mean that God is most pleased when we feel most comfortable. Today we're going to look at two new words, and those words are Tehillah and Zamar. And Tehillah is a song of praise, a new song, a spontaneous song, Zamar is to make music, to celebrate in song and music, and to touch the strings or parts of a musical instrument. And, uh, you know, with these two words, we're, we're not any better off. And so now we're, maybe we're batting 0 for 6 here in terms of comfort level or uh, regularity in the way that we worship. Because um, I think for most of us, these are not uh, things that we commonly do. And again, except for the instrumental part, I guess, um, I, I'm not <laughs> there either. I don't sing a lot of spontaneous songs. And again, at least in the context of Sunday morning church services, I think it applies to all of us. And so I asked the class if anyone played a musical instrument, and there were a few of us who did. I, I played the drums for what it's worth. Um, and then I asked if, if you had grown up with uh, a church that had instrumental worship, and there were a few who had. Most of us, though, grew up a cappella, which is what you would expect in the Church of Christ. Uh, I did not grow up in an instrumental church. I grew up at Southwest Church of Christ in Jonesboro, and while it was viewed as a progressive church among churches of Christ, it was, uh, you know, it was purely a cappella. Now, I do remember an um, event called Youth in Action that we would do every Christmas season, and there was even a big break over. They were playing um, instrumental music in, in the breaks, and there were churches that opted out from the meeting because that was something they weren't comfortable with, and I remember kind of wrestling with that. Um, but the first time I actually witnessed Christian instrumental, uh, sorry, instrumental worship was when I was 13, and this was at an event called Impact at Lipscomb University. It was a summer event. You get 1,500, 2,000 teens together, and one thing for sure is that the acapella worship at night was is, is really as good as any acapella could ever be. And you remember, you know, kids would come back, and they'd be excited to worship that way, maybe exhibiting some of the words that we've talked about in this series, and they would be faced with, you know, very disappointing um, reception, let's say, from the other people in the church, and it just wasn't realistic. I remember the song, you know, that, that has the put your name on the roll, and people kind of spin around, and I think by the third verse of the third course, uh, they had stopped spinning around. And that's just the reality of if you, you bring that kind of energy back into uh, a church service that isn't um, used to that, it, it goes over like a Led, a Led Zeppelin a little bit. Um and so at Lipscomb, though, in this environment, all teenagers, the worship was very loud, very boisterous, but I think also very, very good, and I think I think appropriate as, as best I understand it. Um, and I always liked music. I always enjoyed 
music. And of course, I got into drums later and my brother listened to music and so on and so forth. But I think maybe more than that, I liked being first in line for events. And so that has not changed. I still like to be first and like to sit on the front row if I can at events. Um, And I guess it's just because I'm competitive. But I I remember waiting for hours in line uh, so that I could stand against the stage for uh, concerts. They would actually have rock you know, concerts of Christian bands, most of whom I were unfamiliar with until I saw them, but bands like Third Day and Petra and Audio Adrenaline. I even got up on stage with Audio Adrenaline twice. Um, But if I'm being honest, I think most of these experiences were not really about worship. I don't think I was there yet. It was really more about the music and the energy and the fun and again, kind of being front in line. But because of those experiences, I did get into Christian music. And so I remember my mom took me down to the, the local Christian bookstore and they had some music in there. She was looking for teaching materials, I think. But I picked up a, C- a CD called Seltzer and it was sort of like that, that wow uh, music CDs where it was a compilation CD, but this was for Christian. So bands like DC Talk and Third Day and Newsboys and MXPX and so on, they were on this disc and I got to listen to songs by each of them. And then I went on to reach out and, and you know get a standalone DC Talk album and a th- standalone Third Day album and really listen to that music and love that music. There's a lot of great messages in that music. But by the time I was 16, I'd pretty much moved on. I was only listening to secular music, and I really didn't return to Christian music until probably the last six or seven years or so. My first experience really worshiping God with instruments, it did come at the same event, Impact, but it was a few years later, and it was a late-night devotional on the last night of the week. And two of the older kids who I really looked up to, Kyle McDaniel and Corey Glenn, they had brought acoustic guitars to sing songs by bands like Cademan's Call and Jars of Clay and Michael W. Smith. And I had literally been looking forward to this uh, the whole week. I, I had, at that point, maybe played drums for a couple of years, and I, I had begun loving music, and this was a new and exciting thing. Um, another thing is, as a kid, I didn't really sing audibly, and I don't really have a good reason why. Um, I would mouth the words. I knew the words. I ran the little slides in our youth group, you know, so I was familiar with the music. We were always there, but I didn't feel like I had a good voice, and so I didn't sing audibly. But with the guitar and and with singing songs that we didn't otherwise sing, and maybe it was the environment, I don't know, I I started to sing, and I sang loudly, and that carried over into how I worshipped a cappella, and so it was important for me. Now, at this specific night, this night I was so excited about, no more than three songs into the Devo, there was a man, and he wasn't part of our group, and even to this day, I, I don't know who he was, but he spoke up after that third song to complain. And that third song in particular, I don't remember what it was, but we didn't know it that well, and so that can happen with a cappella, certainly, but it happened, you know, in this case, that people weren't really singing along so well. We were going to go on to the next song, it was going to be fine, but he spoke up to complain that we shouldn't be worshiping with guitar, and that it was clear that most of the kids didn't know these songs, they weren't really singing along like they would if we were doing a cappella songs that were better known. Now, I was furious, again, I was, I don't know, 15, 16, and I'd looked forward to this, and... And, uh, you know, I'm sure Corey and Kyle, who'd lugged their guitars around campus for our Devo, they were upset. And I'm sure our youth minister, Russ Adcox, he was upset. And I fully expected him to put this man in his place and say, no, this is what we're doing. This is God-honoring, and you can leave if you don't like it. But he didn't. Turns out he was more mature than I am, which is probably no surprise as a 15-year-old. But... um, and Russ, he had a way about him, a calm about him, or a peace about him. He said, and he kind of thought for a second, and he said, well, if that's how you feel, we don't want to make you feel unwelcome, and uh, we'll put the guitars away. So sure enough, we put the guitars away, and we 
uh, proceeded to worship acapella for the rest of the night. Now, of course, I was I was crushed. I was really upset uh, pretty much the rest of the night, and I wanted to catch the guy. I remember that. I wanted to tell him off, uh, but I think he stepped out early. So a weird story, I realize, but for me on a personal level, an interesting one because I think it encapsulates a lot of what I ho- hope to talk about tonight. And what I will say is that in hindsight, what Russ did, my youth minister, was right. I, th- I think that was the right decision. Now, as far as the mystery man who told us to stop, whoever he was, um, kind of sounds like one of those stories where like an angel shows up or something. I don't know that he was an angel, but um, I-, I can't really say if he was right or wrong. I don't know, but I think Russ was right. And I think it also, this story, it helps illustrate my childhood as it pertains to instrumental worship. And I guess I would say it like this, that it's it's a little bit confused, a little inconsistent, maybe somewhat unclear with some mixed messages. Um, and maybe your story is like this too. Maybe there were times where you were uh, worshiping with instruments, but then there were times where it was just a cappella, or maybe you grew up in a church where it was said that it was wrong or could send you to hell or that it was strange fire to worship with instruments. And I want to talk about some of that, uh, certainly today. Um Again, I, I went to an acapella church. I attended a conservative Christian school my whole life, and I went to Harding. And I grew up believing the instruments were wrong inside the church. And so I think the big regret of my life uh, as it pertains to instruments is I learned how to play the drums, and I, and I really fostered that talent. And not all of that was bad, but I did it all outside of the church. And so I played dozens and dozens of concerts. Again, some of them good. I played at Harding, and I, I was in Bells and Bows and the jazz band, and those were not negative experiences. I mean, really rich and, and full experiences, but the glory of those events was directed at myself or my band or at songs that are secular. And so for me, a big turning point on a personal level, which this may speak to you and it may not, is that when we started the Night of Praise events at Highland, I realized how much I enjoyed playing drums to worship music and that it was very different from how I felt playing drums to secular music. I truly felt the Spirit of the Lord alive in this music in a way that it wasn't in secular music. And I've played hundreds of shows and practices, and it is, it is truly different in a way that it's hard to describe. Um, and it's made me really read up and study this topic. So, regardless of of what you believe about instrumental music during the Sunday morning worship service, again, there will be no definitive statement made about that this morning, because I think it is a gray area. But I do believe, objectively, that instrumental instrumental worship is important to the modern church. Um, We have better contemporary Christian music, in my opinion, than we've ever had before. And I think what's beautiful about it is it's theologically rich. And both instrumental and a cappella music, you know, Devo songs, to be fair, have not always been theologically rich, and some of them are, are you know, an inch deep, very shallow. Um, and so I think that is beautiful. I think of songs like by Hillsong Worship, um, King of Kings, or Phil Wickham, uh, Living Hope, uh, In Christ Alone, uh, beautiful songs with just super deep, I mean, right, they're basically like modern-day hymns, and they have theology, and it's filled with the gospel in a way that a lot of songs are not. And how in the world could you not want to be listening to that, to that music. It's, it's, it's the truth of the gospel uh, in, in a really concise and beautiful format. When I feel down, I listen to Christian music. My kids, every night they go to bed, they, lis- they listen to Christian music on their little um, Alexa Echo. And I think that instrumental worship has a place biblically in the church. Now, the details of, of when and how and all that, um, some of that I'm just going to leave uh, up to you. And again, it's somewhat of a gray area. 
But we will discuss that today. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and include the video clip in this podcast. And this is going to be about eight minutes long. And this is from Holy Roar on session three. And uh, we'll go to that now. The next two words I want to share with you specifically are pertaining to music. The first word is the word tehillah. Now, tehillah is the Hebrew word for psalm. In fact, the book of psalms in the Bible is called the tehillim, the collection of tehillah. And tehillah is translated praise, or it's translated psalm, or hymn, or song, but it's a little more than that. It's a new song. It's an unrehearsed song. It's a spontaneous song. I moved to the United States 20 years ago, and I was applying for a work visa in Melbourne, Australia. And um, this is what you need. You have to get a work visa to be able to work in the US. And, and so I filled out all of this paperwork, and I had made this application, and I had filed this petition. So I went to the US Embassy in Melbourne, and I stood in line with a bunch of other hopeful immigrants waiting to see if my petition would be granted. So stood in line, got all the way to the front, looked through to the, the thick glass to the lady in front, and I said, hi, my name is Darren Whitehead. She said, oh, I think I've seen your file. And she leans over and she grabs something and then she hands it to me. I open it up, it's my passport, and it's got something inside of it. I look down and I have been given a work visa to come to the United States. Here's the problem. It was not the kind of work visa that I applied for. This was not the kind of work visa that I was even eligible for. Uh, They had given me a religious worker's visa. They had given me a pastor's visa. What this meant is the only way I could come to the US, the only way that I could stay in the US would be as if, if I worked as a pastor. I had never been a pastor before. I had no plans of ever becoming a pastor. And now the only way I could stay is if I served as a pastor. Sometimes people ask me, how did the Lord call you into the ministry? I say, um, the US government called me into this. And out of fear of deportation, I just keep preaching every single week. I'm terrified. Now, that's my story. As inspiring as it is, that's my story. And to my knowledge, no one has yet written a song with those details. It's still available. But that is the the way that I lift my voice and I sing gratitude to God for what he has done in me. The way that he has led me, the way he has guided me. This is my story. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Psalm 22 verse 3 says, But you are holy, enthroned, in the praises of Israel. Some translate this, uh, that God dwells in the praises of his people. You see, sometimes in churches, in between songs or at the end of a song, people just start to lift their voices in spontaneous praise. They just start to sing a new song. They just start to sing out of the overflow of gratitude in their lives. Sometimes they're doing it when they're running or when they're walking or when they're in their cars. Sometimes when they're having a personal time of just worship themselves, they lift their voices and they sing a brand new song. Now, when you sing a spontaneous song, when you sing a new song, 
When you sing a song that doesn't even have to rhyme, it doesn't matter how good your voice is or how good the melody is, God says that I will dwell in that kind of praise. You see, the Bible never says, sing an old song to the Lord. I mean, we do it, right? But over and over again, it says, sing a new song. It's like God wants to remind us to continually reflect on what he's doing in our lives, how he has led us, how he has directed us and guided us, his provision, the healing, the, 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 the blessings that we have in our lives, that we would continually be reflecting on that, lifting our voices back to him and praising him. This is the essence of Tehillah. So the second word that I want to talk to you about also captures the idea of praising through music. It's the word zamar. Zamar is also translated into the English word praise. And it means to touch the strings or parts of a musical instrument. How many know that music is more powerful than we even understand? There is a certain kind of flower and a certain species of bird. And, and, and when this bird chirps, the sound of the chirping of the bird causes the flower to open. Zamar has this impact on the human soul. You ever had that experience before? We've kind of walked into church late and all of a sudden your soul begins to open. As you hear the sounds of God's people, you, you hear the music of, of Zamar. In the ancient world, there were times where the scriptures could only ever be read if there was underscoring underneath. There was Zamar. There was the, the soundtrack to the scriptures. Zamar shows up in Psalm 144 verse 9. It says, I'll sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of 10 strings, I will sing Zamar to you. In 2 Kings, there's a story of Elisha. And he is deliberating on what they should do and what the Lord is wanting to say. And at this juncture, in this moment, he has these famous words. He says, now bring me the harpist. And the harpist came out and the harpist started to play. And as the harpist started to play, he was able to discern the voice of the Lord. Maybe some of you musicians, uh, maybe you play the guitar, but have you ever been, you ever been playing or you've been playing the piano and you just find yourself being caught up? You're, you're worshiping, you're praising God through the instrument. You don't have to be a musician to be able to appreciate Zamar. In fact, music was created by God for God. The very origin of music was this access point to be able to access his presence. Uh, this is why music even exists, that it would open the human soul, that we would be able to experience God. Sometimes you express your heart to God in praise beyond lyrics, beyond words. It's with music. And there is a special kind of praise in the Bible that is melodical, it is musical. This is the essence of Zamar. So, you know, there's a lot 
to unpack from a video like that. I, I think one topic that we won't dive into too deeply today is that of spontaneous song or tehillah, and it's just because we don't have time to do it. Um, but I don't, I don't think I do that very often at all. And I asked the class if anyone did, and no one really seemed like they did. I guess the question would be, are, are there songs that we should be singing spontaneously to God? Should our love for God and our appreciation for the free gift of grace, should that response be that of a spontaneous song? In the same way that we do spontaneous prayers or we spontaneously speak in the assembly or on our own outside of the assembly, should we also sing it's just not something that we're comfortable with, and I think it's also a, a concept that we don't really talk about at all. We don't talk about a lot of things. We don't talk about fasting that often, and I think these are Christian disciplines that perhaps we miss. Um, and so I think in addition to prayer and to reading Scripture and to gathering together uh, weekly and many other things, I think probably spontaneous song is, is one of those things that there's great value in. And it might be that we are afraid to, to be spontaneous in that it's disorganized and maybe a little rough around the edges. I know that's one of the things I'm, I'm probably least comfortable with. And certainly from a musical perspective, anything I ever do has been rehearsed to the nth degree. But I, I think God calls for a new song from us and a spontaneous song. And um, again, a much deeper conversation than we have time to go down. But I think it's something that's that's good to chew on. We're, we're mostly going, though, to discuss the second word which is Zamara, which refers to musical instruments. Before we get into that, I do want to talk just on a sort of human or a biological level about the power of music. And in the video, Darren, he talked about how music opens the soul. And we have stories in the Bible, and he alluded to one of these, Elisha, and then we also have Saul, and both of whom requested harpists to play during moments of difficult decision-making or when they were anxious. And of course, David was the harpist for Saul, uh, who had lots of ups and downs. He was sort of manic depressive. And I think, you know, when it gets tough in my life or I get anxious, I oftentimes do listen to music. And I think that's that's a good thing. Um, the King's Speech, you may have seen that movie. King George VI in that movie, uh, he's known to his friends by the nickname Birdie. And he has a speech impediment. He has a stutter which is a pretty big problem because at the time, English royals had to deliver public addresses. And so Birdie and his wife, Elizabeth, they visit several different speech therapists. And of course, because it's a, a movie and we like this narrative structure, nothing seems to work at first, right? All the, the traditional and sure bets, uh, they, they can't help him. So frustrated, Birdie agrees to visit one final therapist, and this is a man named Lionel Logue. And in one scene, Lionel records the king reading lines out loud from Hamlet, while listening to music blaring over headphones. And to the king's surprise, when he later listens to the recording, he finds that his stammer is completely gone. He speaks wonderfully. And there is something about how the music occupies the king's mind that allows him to speak flawlessly and like a king. It's a great movie. My favorite story, though, about the power of music is how it affects people with dementia. And I have a video, but I don't think it'll work really well in a podcast setting. So I'll just tell you about it. And you can look it up. If you'll just look up, um, you know, old man with dementia who listens to music. There's several videos of the same topic. And in short, um, it, it opens his mind. So he'll listen to some music. And the same man that is sort of 
closed off and isolated from the world, he opens up and he remembers so much just from listening to music. And so um, I think it was Immanuel Kant, the, uh, the narrator says, calls music the great quickening agent. And so there is something I, I feel biologically about music that is special. Now, certainly this idea that music is special, it applies to acapella as well as instrumental. I'm not trying to, to make a difference between the two, but just that music, there's something I think that God has made in us to appreciate it. Even my young, you know, Lucy, who's a year, when she hears music, her head immediately starts to move and she starts to kind of dance with her body. Breeshan talked about that last week. And so this is no surprise to anyone in the church that music is special and that it brings something unique out of us and it allows us to praise God in a way that is very unique and special. So for the third point, we're going to talk about the history of instrumental worship in the church. And let me just say that this is a big, dense topic that we could spend several weeks on if we wished, and we probably won't. Um, but I would recommend a few books. I'm trying to see. I'm looking around here one second. The book is called Acapella Music in the Public Worship of the Church. It's by Everett Ferguson. I actually went to um, Harding with his granddaughter, I believe. Uh, but it goes into great depth on the history of worship in the Old and New Testament church, and, and certainly his conclusion on the matter is uh, in favor of a cappella worship um, uniquely. And so I may not agree entirely with his um, conclusion, but I, I agree with his methods, and I think he does a fantastic job, perhaps the best job of anything I've read, sort of going into all that and delving much deeper into it. Um, but I want to give a, somewhat of a summarized version of that history, just so that there may be some things you're not aware of. And I think it's important to understand the history, and I think uh, we'll try and land on some conclusions. But um, what we do know is that instrumental worship was commanded in the temple worship of the people of Israel, so in the Old Testament people. And it was also practiced, as far as we know, in the temple worship of the first century church. Of course, the temple would have still been there, and then, of course, it was destroyed shortly thereafter the life of Jesus. But in Second Chronicles 29, verses 25 through 26, King Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way prescribed by David and Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. This was commanded by the Lord through his prophets. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priests with their trumpets. So instrumental worship was not commanded, nor was it prohibited, nor was it practiced in the assemblies of the early church coming out of the synagogues of the diaspora. Now, the diaspora was the Jews living outside of Israel, so they did not have access to temple worship, except for at times where there would have been you know, holy events or holy days, and they would have been traveling into Jerusalem. And this synagogue worship was the continuation of a practice uh, lacking instrumental accompaniment that was established at around the same time as the foundation of synagogue worship during the Babylonian captivity. And that is explained in Psalm 137. And what's important to, to note is, is that as far as we have record, there was no command to start synagogue worship. There was no uh, thing where God told him, you need to worship without instruments. Now, Jesus in his day would have been in the synagogue, and as, as far as we can assume, would have also been in the temple. And so it's likely he would have been witness to instrumental and a cappella worship. And while he did not prescribe one or the other, it did seem that he, would, he was comfortable and he was active in both settings. Um, but here in Psalm 137, I think it gives some clue maybe to why they did stop worshiping with, worshiping with instruments. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung up our harps. We hung up our harps. 
For there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of your songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So it is possible, and this maybe oversimplifies it, but it's possible that the songs of the temple were songs of celebration. I mean, these are songs written by David and his musicians uh, during a time of great success for Israel and during a time of flourishing. And certainly in captivity, to worship with instruments and to sing those sorts of songs uh, maybe felt out of place. Uh, that's, that's one possibility. These are now songs of lament they'd be singing. Um, and then it's possible for whatever reason, by the time coming back to the temple, that there was there was instrumental worship again in the, in the temple. I think that's uh, almost certain. But that that synagogue worship that, it, that it was established during that time in exile, it remained. And then it actually became the more popular, more common way of worshiping in the first century church. Um, first century Christians in the diaspora traveling to Jerusalem would have experienced instrumental worship in the temple. And as far as we could tell, which we don't have a lot of great information on this, but it would seem that maybe we would have known if this were the case, but they would not have had any conscience, conscience, <laughs> conscience issue with this, since acapella only worship was was never taught by the apostles. At least it was never recorded. And the experience of the first Christians was in uh, in the temple, as described in Acts two forty six and forty seven, where it says every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. And so we have very early on in Acts evidence that they still continue to meet in the temple, where we presume there were instrumental worship inside the temple. And of course, we know that some of these uh, Christians were meeting in homes where they did not have instruments. Now, one thing we also know is that there will be instruments in heaven. Revelation 15 describes the saints as they held harps given to them by God, and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Now, perhaps these instruments were figurative. Maybe they're literal. I, I tend to think that they're literal, or, or it, you know, it, how would we ever know? Um, but certainly, the harps were literal from the Old Testament, and so it seems to be that, that God, if he's handing them to people and asking them to sing, he's okay with the practice. Um, but as far as we know, Instrumental worship wasn't that common during the first century church, and I don't think there's anything to be ashamed about with that. As, as someone, me personally, who appreciates instrumental worship, I think we we it demands that we are honest about what we do know. And what we do know is if this is like a debate uh, club, and I'm given you know debate in favor of acapella or debate in favor of instrumental worship, I feel like I could do both because I do feel like it is a gray area. But if I'm going to you know have more evidence about the first century church, well, certainly it's that a cappella was the more common method of singing. There's no doubt about that. And I think it would be unfair to try and present it any differently. Um, and so a cappella worship was what they used in the synagogue and in the home church settings. And largely when Jesus would have sang, and really the only evidence we have of when Jesus sang would have been a cappella. Even the words themselves, and this goes into more detail that Everett Ferguson goes into, but uh, they sort of changed his words. And so the word like solo, um, it changed from being associated with the Psalms, which was a songbook of the church, which was written for instruments, to really more referring to a cappella or vocal only worship, similar to like a word like lyrical, which derives from the lyre, which is an instrument. 
to then now lyrical or lyrics are written word. So words can change over time. And so there's some hints into the style of worship from words. Um, again, Ferguson does a much better job than I can doing that. Um, and so why did they worship acapella? Well, really, we don't know. Um, maybe it was because there was an association of pagan worship that was largely instrumental. Uh, maybe they wanted to separate themselves from what maybe some saw as excessive temple worship. Or maybe it was just a cultural preference or change. Um, regardless, uh, for whatever the reason was, instruments did not enter back into the church until around the 7th century AD at the earliest in the form of an organ, but maybe even as late as the 10th century AD. Um, and, and further, as I said earlier, when singing is mentioned in the New Testament, it's mentioned quite a few times, it most likely refers to a cappella, unaccompanied music. Even the term a cappella, it comes from the Latin by way of Italian, and it's used to mean in the style of the church. It is a classical form of church music. Um, now, part of this, because I feel like with all these, these things as it pertains to worship, there's a point and a counterpoint. And the counterpoint is, well, the first century church, what was their a cappella like? Well, as far as we know, it was more uh, like chanting. And that style of music doesn't really leave as much space for instruments. And so I think as the art of music and church music became more complex, the inclusion of instruments became a little more natural. Um, and so as Beethoven and Mozart began uh, writing music, it sort of changed the, the conception of music. And I would even say that our modern version of a cappella singing, of which we have three variations on a Sunday morning at Highland, I would say that it's, it's pretty different musically from that of the early church. You might even say indistinguishable. Um, however, it's very similar in that it includes vocals only. Now, some of this I've lifted from uh, my wife, Anna's church, uh, her, well, her father-in-law, his church, not her father-in-law, her father, my father-in-law. Um, they go to North County Church of Christ in Escondido, and they actually had a, a group of their members uh, leave for different reasons, but they started a new church and it had instruments, and so they were sort of forced to revisit their stance on instruments, and they, they came upon the conclusion that other churches have come upon in the Church of Christ, which is to be a both-and church. What I mean by that is that they have um, a cappella and instruments. And here is their conclusion, and I'm not saying I endorse this in entirely, but I think it's a reasonable approach to what is obviously a complicated and difficult topic. And here it is. Just as there were two styles of worship in the first century, one coming out of the temple worship and the other out of the synagogue, we feel free likewise to practice either or both. For those whose conscience does not permit, where their preference restricts, we allow freedom to the degree that it doesn't do harm to our aim of being one church, unified in love, and being like-minded in our obedience to Christ. We highly value our a cappella heritage as it gives us a greater ability to sing wherever we are found, and it uses the only musical instrument solely designed by God, our voices. Much like Paul and Silas were found singing in prison, and Philip too, we value being able to bring the service of worship to the graveside, bedside, to the mountaintop, or in our home devotionals spontaneously. We never want to lose this precious gift. We likewise see benefits of instrumental accompanied singing, when led by gifted and prepared musicians who are sensitive to the leading of God's Spirit and the ability to bring an intensity of emotion to the words that brings a greater richness and passion to some songs that cannot be accomplished easily with just a voice. So maybe you agree, maybe you disagree with that. Again, this is not where Highland is at, and this is a different church with a different set of um, circumstances and in a different part of the United States and so on and so forth, but I think that's a reasonable approach. Um, so here are some challenges I have for the Church of Christ and for Highland, 
And please don't take me as being harsh here, but I think these are good things to think about. And, and my goal today is, is that if you're completely pro-instruments and you think it's silly, we don't have an instrumental service, I want you to feel conflicted, okay? I want you to be coming closer to the center. And if you're purely pro-acapella and you think instruments are wrong, I want you to feel that same and inverse reaction. Um, I, I think that it's possible that almost all of us are too extreme in one way or another as we view worship. And that's what the point of this series really is. Um, I think, though, that we need to stop acting like worshiping with instruments is wrong. Certainly that it's sinful to the extent that it would send one to hell. I, I just don't see any evidence for that severe of an approach. Um, one of our defining characteristics as a movement traditionally was that we thought we were right, um, perhaps about everything. It's not true of every Church of Christ, but that is sort of the stereotype. And I do think, though, that to whatever degree that's true, the judgmental and legalistic approach to worship needs to stop. I think that in studying this, it's impossible to come, I believe, on an absolute black and white, this is a primary doctrine level of conclusion. And I think that most people I know that I that I respect hold to that same belief. Further, um, we should be able to worship with other groups of believers. The Church of Christ, it started as an ecumenical movement, meaning it was about unity and the concept of that was that we could all worship a cappella, which I think is a beautiful concept um, that would would unite us and not divide us. Now, unfortunately, the opposite has proved true. And as, as Eric spoke this morning in his sermon, hindsight is 2020, and, and hindsight would say that, well, you know, this has not led necessarily to more unity. Um, but regardless, uh, we should be willing to worship with other believers in other denominations when the time arises, uh, even if they have different approaches to worship. I think that the primary things, you know, the gospel-centered and gospel-focused things are what should be most important. Now, it is perfectly fine to have different secondary and tertiary beliefs that cause for us to worship inside different buildings on Sundays, but as the greater church, the capital C church, I think we need to have a a different and more grace-filled approach to this topic. Third, we must stop equating order and precision with worshiping God appropriately. And now this doesn't apply to probably Highland, but to some churches maybe you grew up in or grew up around, the old school Church of Christ approach to a cappella isn't particularly biblical. Um, the idea that it has to be, you know, the number of the song has to be pronounced loudly and it can only be songs that people know or songs that were written before 1900 or that there has to be a song leader that uh, you know there could be no praise team, or so a lot of these other things, or that everyone has to be ordered and cannot show emotion. Uh, to me, these are fences that we've built around worship, and they are man-made fences. And I and I think if anything is wrong, it is limiting the spirit of God and its ability to work through us during worship. Fourth, we need to be honest about our inconsistencies, and we we pride ourselves as a first-century church movement, and I think there is some value in that. Um, but we aren't always, you know, consistent in that. We aren't always committed to every practice of the first century church. And I'm not trying to be rude, but there are certain things we don't do. Women don't cover their heads in this church of Christ. They do wear jewelry. Um, We don't handle snakes. We don't prophesy. We don't greet each other with a holy kiss, certainly not now that there's coronavirus. And so there are some things that the first century church seemed to do that we don't do. And even if we, even if, if, if they did and we did, is that necessarily what God wants? And so there's this concept called 
primitivism. And it's the idea that the primitive version of religion is the most pure. And certainly, in some ways, there is value at seeing, you know, how did the church start? What was the germ-like state of the church? And you can learn a lot from that. I'm not necessarily convinced that worship is one of those things. If we see worship evolve throughout the Old Testament into the synagogue-style worship of a cappella, I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that worship has evolved into today. Um, you may disagree, but I think it's worth thinking about. And another thing I would say is, is if we don't teach our kids why we worship a cappella, so it's really important to us, we would never go somewhere that doesn't worship that way, but we don't teach our kids, and even further, we send them mixed signals. Um, we, you know, we allow them to worship on Wednesday nights that way, or we take them to a, you know, a Justin Timberlake concert, whatever it may be. Why should we expect them to care about a cappella? And so, uh, to me, it sort of reminds me of science and religion and beliefs on creation, for example. Um, if you don't allow for uh, flexibility or grace on a topic like that, it can cause people to give up on the thing that matters most, which is their relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I think we need to be careful in the ways that maybe we're inconsistent. I think we also must realize that we're all limited by our own experiences. It is easy to assume that what we are used to or what we most enjoy is what God is most pleased by, and that, that applies to all of us. And I think ultimately we must place the highest value on worshiping, glorifying God, um, and on church unity. So I have a little bit left. I want, I want to talk on congregational singing. I actually had to miss this this morning because I was running out of time, and uh, I'll probably reiterate some of this uh, during week five. But I think this for me is, is what singing is really about and I think that whatever leads to congregational singing should be the goal. Uh, Keith and Kristen Getty, they wrote a book called Sing, How, to, uh, How Worship Transforms Your Life, Family, and Church. And Keith and, uh, Keith and Kristen, rather, the Gettys, they've written a lot of popular modern hymns. And one of those, In Christ Alone, is, is perhaps one of my favorite hymns of the last 20 years. Uh, the, the lyrical content is just fantastic. We've done it um, at Night of Praise many times. And they say that congregational singing is one of the greatest and most beautiful tools we've been given to declare God's excellencies, strengthening his church, and sharing his glory with the world. Um, I think what's unique about them is, is that the Gettys, they're free to worship with instruments. That's the way they were raised. Um, and they've traveled the world. They've worshiped in all possible settings. But at their church, it's not a rock band setting. It's not an orchestra. It's also not a cappella, uh, which they've done before. But it's a very light, almost acoustic instrumental accompaniment. And the musicians are tucked off to the side of the auditorium. And for them, their focus is congregational singing. And so I think it's, it's possible that from opposite sides of the spectrum, at least in my opinion, we've sort of landed on the same ideal. And you can congregationally sing with or without instruments, which, which I think is the point of today. Is, is it what's the safer option? Well, it's it's perhaps to, to worship a cappella, but is it wrong to worship with instruments? I don't believe that there's evidence for that. But it's wrong either way if it doesn't result in congregational singing. And yes, there are churches of Christ who sing a cappella that are guilty of not singing that much and of not emoting and of not living out the gospel in the way that they praise God in the congregation. And this is a problem. So another thing they talk about that I think is great is millennials. And um, to be clear, we're losing the part of our church age 22 to 35. And it's not because we aren't providing a rock concert atmosphere. I think the idea that instruments would somehow fix the fact that we're losing people is, is naive. Um, millennials, what they want, among other things, are, are clarity, authenticity, and I think substantive communication. 
biblically rich content in songs sung by people who believe what they are singing. This helps teach the gospel as something that is credible and powerful rather than cultural and optional. Uh, The Gettys say this, It may seem obvious that to draw the millennial generation back to the church, what is needed is more of a gig or concert-like atmosphere to our singing rather than a congregational approach. After all, that's what they expect outside of the church. This is not proving to be true, (laughs) and they don't think it's true either. They would say that a church that sings together across generations, and that's a whole other topic, intergenerational nature of churches, we've lost that, and we need that, and it's healthy for the church. So across generations, standing side by side, putting community unity before personal preferences, putting community unity before personal preferences, is making a powerful and attractive statement to those who yearn for community more authentic than that which can be enjoyed online and friendship deeper than is found in counting your Facebook friends. That's maybe the most powerful statement of the whole day, is what I just read. And so being vague and gospel light, or what C.S. Lewis calls gospel and water, um, it watered down Christianity effectively, if we're, if we're like that in our congregational songs, it, because we are trying to be seeker-friendly, we're missing the point. Uh, communicating the gospel in a way that informs the mind and engages the emotion is what we're after. Okay, The gospel is the church's the church is central, lyrical, distinctive. It's what makes Christianity Christianity, and we should not be shy about it. And here's a challenge to you. As you stand and sing in church this Sunday or next Sunday, you do not know who is listening, and you can never imagine what the Lord might be doing. I'll tell you who is listening and who's watching, and that's your children. All right, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. This is a verse that I believe David will focus on next week. And this is probably the most popular verse the Church of Christ has used to justify a cappella worship, and because it's there. I think the idea that it's a cappella is in this verse, but I think there's more to it as well. And it says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this verse, I do think, is, is talking about um, vocal worship. I don't think it's a prohibition, again, for instrumental worship, but I think it is most likely, based on the words and the history of these words, most likely talking about worship from the mouth. Now, again, I don't think that eliminates the possibility of instrumental accompaniment, um, but I, I think it also does not eliminate what the point of this statement is, and that is that Christian singing begins with the heart not on the lips. Certainly you can worship with your lips and your mouth and it mean nothing. That it have no spiritual aspect to it. That it not have anything to do with your heart. That it not be uh, the product of you being moved to worship your creator. So that's a problem too. Um, and then again though, if you want to look at acapella, if I want to be on a debate team for acapella, there are more than 400 references to singing in the Bible and at least 50 direct commands in terms of singing with your mouth. In contrast, there are 77 references to instruments and fewer than 10 direct commands to use instruments. And so again, I think acapella wins out. Now, I think there are different reasons for that, and hopefully I've uh, you know, shared that with you today. But to me, the most important thing is to sing, and to sing to God with joy. And worship is not primarily about music, techniques, songs, or methodologies. It's about what and who we love more than anything. Here's another quote from the Gettys, and we'll wrap up. Our motivation to sing comes from so much more than ourselves, our lives, our comfort levels, our musical tastes and preferences. 
Intrinsically, it's driven by the one who died and was raised. It is driven by a heartfelt desire to convey gospel truth to those who already know it and need to be refreshed and renewed by it, and to communicate it to those who don't yet know, but who might be drawn to Christ through seeing and hearing people who clearly mean it because of the way that they sing about it. Amen. So I would say, as a personal aside, is, is if instrumental accompaniment can help achieve this goal, we should at least consider it, okay? But the instrument is not the end-all, be-all of Christian singing. And I think you would be unfair and unbiblical to come away with that conclusion. Um, and certainly to think that acapella is wrong. Well, of course it's not wrong. It's what, it's what they were doing. Now, I think building fences around acapella worship or the way that we do that that can be wrong. And so I hope you can understand this is a very difficult topic to teach on, much simpler to teach on black and white issues. This is a gray issue. But in conclusion, we, we do not worship the created art of singing any more than we worship the created art of instruments. Uh, we worship the creator, God. And the main goal of this series, Holy Roar, is to learn not only that we ought to sing as Christians, and we, and we ought to, but that we should also love to sing as Christians. And I'll end with this quote from Tim Keller. It's from the Songs of Jesus. Glorious worship is exuberant, never half-hearted. It is attractive, not off-putting. It is awesome, never sentimental. It is brilliant, not careless. It points to God, not to the speakers. There is nothing more evangelistic, nothing that will win the world more than glorious worship. So I want to thank you for for listening to this. I don't even know how long it is. I've probably been doing this for like two hours now. Um but I do appreciate you for being interested in this topic and for, for sitting through and listening through to something that you may not completely agree with. And I'll be honest, this is a difficult one to teach, and my mindset and conclusions changed throughout my research. I read about this for about a week, which is probably several weeks too short, um, but I did the best that I could to consider all the different sources and opinions and sides of this issue. And again, I think what I land on is, is that congregational singing is the most important thing. And at Highland, to be fair, we have that. We have great congregational singing every week. And so I think we are blessed by that. And I think on a personal level, we need to evaluate these issues and evaluate our heart as it pertains to worship. And when we talk about these seven Hebrew words, how are we doing? You know, is this something that we we take as, as revelation from God, which it is? And what are we doing with those things? And, and maybe in what ways have we created uh, fences around some of these issues and around the way that we worship God. So uh, we should worship God on a Sunday, on a Monday, and on a Tuesday, and on a Wednesday, and throughout the whole week. We should worship Him with our lives as we as we are living sacrifices, as, as Romans says. And we should also worship God with our mouths as we worship Him in song throughout the week, in spontaneous songs and in prepared songs, and in so many different ways. And what we should be focused on is the gospel. And that is the lyrical distinctive of the church, as that quote said. And I think that should always be what undergirds these conversations is how do we share the gospel with as many people as possible. So again, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for the last uh, true week on Holy Roar uh, with David Flatt. He'll be talking about the expectation of praise. He'll be going over one Hebrew word. And then our final week, we will actually worship together as a small congregation, as a congregation of the Bridge Builders. So that is all I have. I hope you have a blessed day or a blessed night. And if you're ever in the Memphis area, please join us at the Bridge Builders class, 10 a.m. at Highland Church of Christ here in Cordova, Tennessee. And uh, again, just appreciate you so much. God bless. Have a great week.